I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. G'day, guys. You're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. It's Steve here, and I'm, of course, with Adrian. G'day, guys. And we're going to talk today about our 50th episode. Number 50. We started this podcast probably about a year ago, and I look back over the guest lists, and I'm blown away by these amazing people that have given their time to come on the show and share with us stuff that's taken them a lifetime quite often to accumulate but for, for no money. Yeah, they never get anything out of it. It's, they, they give a lot of their time away for it. Their knowledge is worth money, isn't it? It absolutely sure. is. I mean, we used to give them a bottle of wine, but we don't even do that oh, anymore. Oh, shit, don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them don't know that. <laughs> for those that didn't get a bottle of wine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of you got a little soft toy, a little toy screw glider. Prefer the bottle of wine. Wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, you lucked out. So, we're, no, but we are totally serious. It is just me and Adrian today. Yeah, and we thought we'd just talk about why we started the podcast. We thought we'd talk about some of the cool things that we've got out of doing this podcast. We both started listening to podcasts around about the same time. And as you guys know, you can listen to a podcast, you can still get stuff done. You can be driving, you can be working, you can be, you know, chopping animal food, whatever it is that you do. Because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to pick up a book. I'm ready to go to sleep, you know, so I can still get some information, get that enrichment throughout the day. So that's, that's one of the big motivators for us to do this. But, but also it's because we want to learn stuff in this particular area. When we first started listening to podcasts, so when I did, you were first, you sort of got me onto podcasts and then we were, we were looking everywhere for just general animal podcasts, general environmental podcasts, and there, there weren't that many around. We thought, now we're a bit better at searching for podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> There's millions of them. There's millions of them. And we're just joining that queue. But yeah, at the time, we just wanted to maybe get some of that Australian stuff out there. Yeah, we thought we'd actually run through some of the highlights. I mean, I've got to say, the episode we did with Neil Waters, if you guys have heard it, it's the one where we talked to Neil Waters. He's a thylacine, I want to say Nuts. researcher. Nut. Um, <laughs> thylacine hunter. He's the repository for thylacine and big cat and anything else, kind of cryptozoological, all of those strange sightings. They all go through him. His episode is the most downloaded episode. Now, I love that. I think it's great. I think he's harmless. What he does is cool. And some people... Some of the more scientific people were like, oh, that's pseudoscience, you know, we don't approve. But at the end of the day, if he's getting listeners to this show, he's therefore promoting all the other guests that we have on and all the important work that goes on too. So power to him. Yeah. The great thing, all of our guests, they'll get on and they'll share the podcast they've done. And yeah, but his has had a lot of downloads. <laughs> it certainly has. And to be fair, he does share it a lot. I mean, he's got a big, there's a big internet following in, in his subject too. And he does share it a lot. Um, quick update on Neil. He has found a thylacine. No, he, <laughs> he's in Arnhem Land right now with my cousin Marie, Marie Mankara, who was also on the show. So they're up there right now and he's talking to some elders in Arnhem Land. Marie's got him into country and he's talking to those guys about some of their stories. So maybe we'll get him back on and he can share some of that stuff with us too. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. Trip. Yeah. Cryptozoology. That means cryptic animals, animals that are hard to find. It's normally just things like Loch Ness monsters and stuff, isn't it? Bigfoot. All of that. All yeah, of that stuff. That sort of stuff. But thylacine has got itself into that class, yeah, hasn't it? it Which I think is a good thing because I think it gains more interest because of that. I guess so, yeah. Mm. Is there cryptobotany? Is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, of course there is. There is? Okay, Ghost good. gums. Ghost, oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Um, and then moving swiftly uh, onwards. Actually, there's a ghost in this house. We don't talk about it too much. but I do. 
yeah, Steve does. He lets people know. Freaks out a as lot of the people. As soon as someone new comes to the house, I say, yeah. there's a ghost. And I show them every time. There's and a, it's true. Mm, it's a weird feeling when you walk down that hallway. And there is a, a like a, yeah, I don't know, it's like an outline of a just a bloke standing there, isn't it? Yeah. Could be a woman, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I it's think a bloke. pretty freaky. It's pretty freaky yeah. what goes on there. Mm. We're at Animals Anonymous headquarters. It's haunted. <sighs> so bit of an update we had gavin bedford on too when we were up the nt ourselves mm. recently and we were looking at owen pelly pythons and yeah that that turned out that i i seem to have brought some owen pelly pythons <laughs> pretty much the last species of python for me to keep apart from ones that have never really had more than the one in a jar in a museum somewhere but uh, yeah it's very cool and it's a python that we always thought we'd never be allowed to keep in the hobby because uh, it's the Aboriginal snake. Uh, what's its Aboriginal name? Rainbow Serpent. Yeah, Rainbow Serpent. There is a, a name for it. But yeah, so we, we never actually thought we would be allowed to keep that. So over the last five years with Gavin working towards it, we can uh, we can now have them in the hobby. And yeah, I got my first ones a couple of weeks ago. Are people calling you up now getting orders? No, I, I haven't <laughs> told them. This is the first time that I've told anyone. It's only oh. people like you that know that I've got them. I just let There's the snake no out of the bag. pictures out there. Kyle was round today, Kyle Chalmers, who's uh, someone we've had on the podcast, Olympic swimmer, gold medalist, great guy. Yeah, he held it today and got a couple of photos taken with it, which was great. He loved it, so no doubt at some point. I didn't tell him not to, so no doubt at some point he'll put pictures up. I'm not advertising the fact. Well, I am now, but I wasn't going to. But yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you let people know your address, Steve? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Mickey Mouse Lane. <laughs> <laughs> so... That same trip we met with Dr. Charlie Manolis at, uh, I always want to say Crocosaurus Crocus, Cove, but yeah, it's Crocodilus Park. Park. Stupid yep. that those, those, both of those places have similar names. Yeah. Do you think that's a competition thing? I don't yeah, know. Apparently, it's apparently, a bit it strange. apparently it was. Apparently it was. Apparently when Crocosaurus <laughs> Cove, which is newer, came out, they thought we'll have a name similar to theirs so that people come here too i don't understand I don't the yeah, or the there. other way around whichever it was but yeah one of those um, things he was very interesting he's he sure was bloody knowledgeable about crocodiles isn't he definitely was and we um we bought two little saltwater crocodiles from him he did how are they getting on they're they're right here they're feeding well they're called salt and pepper <laughs> and they've been to many schools around south australia to teach kids about crocodiles salt and pepper yeah okay yeah, yeah i warned people so we're going to show you the biggest terrestrial predator in Australia, and I pull out a tiny hatchling saltwater crocodile. <laughs> Actually, one of my staff, TJ, she's rescued this one now. She's rescued a baby cat, this little tiny kitten that's like three weeks old. It's tiny, it's fluffy, it's cute. And she, she does the saltwater crocodile thing at the show, and then she'll say, now this next animal is the biggest killer in Australia. And she pulls out the kitten, and all the kids are like, that's not a killer. That's cute. Oh. And then she says, well, they kill 70 to 90 million reptiles a year. And she goes through all the stats. And, and, then, and then rather than get all preachy, she says, what can we do about it? And the kids are like, we can't let them outside. And yeah, it works well. It's like having kids here, Adrian. It is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, Steve, one of the other reasons we, we do this is because most of the people that have come on the show are friends of ours. So we're very lucky to know some well, I think are really interesting people and we get to be part of some cool conversations. So it's a great opportunity having this podcast to share some of those conversations with people. It's quite amazing to think that the circles that we seem to go in now and the, and the more podcasts you do, like the more people, like the, the more that opens up to other people and things. And 
we know some pretty cool people, don't we? We're very lucky. And we've had researchers now come to us, people that we have only heard of, and they've expressed interest to come on the show. They've got a new book out or this or that. So that's been good. It's been good. It's been nice to provide a platform for people, you know, to try to push that environmental message. I mean, it's the hardest part of my job. I mean, I love my job. People always say, oh, you've got the best job in the world. That's because they've never done it. But it's I struggle trying to sex up conservation i mean you say conservation biodiversity you say extinction these words they don't really mean much when you hear them and they're they tend to be really boring and yet the subject itself is so bloody important to me it's so bloody important australia is such a biodiverse place and there are some remarkable places within it and people just aren't aware i mean i think most people if if they're in their suburban backyard and they've got rainbow lorikeets and blue tongue lizards and possums, they go, well, this is very diverse, you know, and it's true. It is. It's probably more diverse than half of Europe, but the diversity you get in the bush, in some of these places that are untouched, you know, from the small things right up to the, you know, right up the system is off the hook. And that's the stuff we're losing. It's so fragile. You know, you can drive for miles and miles and miles just through farmland, agricultural land and, you know, I mean, a big thing I've been seeing a lot recently, Steve, is people talking about travelling and driving, especially down here in southern Australia, and just not getting any dead bugs on the windscreen. Mm. You know, and that's a there's a lot of lot of scientific people that are seriously concerned about this. You know, what does what does that say? I mean, yeah, we've had some droughts, but I don't know. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there isn't there isn't much of that, is there? I mean, even coming from the UK, like most of the year, you drive down the road and you've got bugs. Ah, uh, just killing your windows and but yeah here you don't actually get that never really thought about that i mean you go to kangaroo island this doesn't have any foxes so you've still got things like the tamar wallabies and there are so many tamar wallabies on the side of the road and it's sad but it also shows you how diversity so Mm. in some respects if we did have that biodiversity if if we didn't have cats and foxes in australia you would dive drive down the street it's probably a bit macabre there'd be dead quolls there'd be dead bilbies there'd be dead numbats and all sorts of stuff Mm. It's it's a strange one with with cats and foxes, isn't it? Because there there is probably no amount of money and resources now to actually eliminate things like that. That's probably it for us with that. We've got to run with it. But it's one of the things like paleontology side of things when we talk about some of the animals in the history that were here that are now extinct. Phylacaleo. Yep. That now would have such a great life. The marsupial lion. Yeah. If that was here now, like that would be predating probably on foxes and cats and things, and it would probably be keeping it all under control a bit more. I find that fascinating that once upon a time they died out, I would assume because of either, well, you wouldn't assume it was predators to them, but it was probably down to prey or... Could have been humans and yeah, fire regimes and changing yeah, the environment. Yeah, stuff like that, I guess. But yeah, so they, they died out. They must, yeah, like now, they'd be, I reckon they'd be super successful now if we had animals like that around. Australia almost needs a bigger predator. I don't know, and that, that might be, you know, that might make more damage, but I think it might actually keep cats and foxes under control a bit. Well, they talk about bringing back thylacines. I'm not sure if a thylacine would be able to chase down cats and things, would it? Yeah, I don't know. And they want to bring devils to the mainland too. We've had mm. a scientist that wants to come on and talk about that because mm. devils were here. 3,000 years ago when the thylacine was here, if it's not still here. Oh. I went there. <laughs> um, actually, people. one of the big questions I get asked is people ask me, do I think they're there? Because I'm really good friends with Neil and mm. I'm a big fan of Neil's 
people think that I think they're here. And I have to say, I don't think they're here, but I wouldn't say they're not. Mm. But I honestly don't think they're here. I do believe they're extinct. Mm. And I, I mean, most people will say, look, they could be in Tasmania, but I mean, who knows? Mm. Yeah. But we all hope they are still here. I think so. Mm. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to find someone that doesn't. But that said, I mean, here in South Australia, we, tiger quolls are extinct. I mean, we've got tiger quolls here. They're an awesome animal. That's what, I think that's the favourite animal. And I'm, you know, I, I only keep native animals to educate about the environment. And if I didn't have this job, I probably wouldn't keep any. But I love going outside and seeing, you know, a tiger quoll. Mm. They're awesome animals. Bone crunching jaws. You know, they're bigger than a cat. The way they climb trees is phenomenal. Beautiful to look with the beautiful spots right down the, you know, the tail. But there are people today that get them in their chook coops, like places where tiger quolls are still found in the East Coast, and they shoot them. I ate my chooks. Mm. Now... If you can't build a chicken coop that keeps out foxes, cats, and quolls, don't blame them. the animal. Yeah. That's on you, man. That's on you. Mm. Rant over. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's fair, though, isn't it? Yeah. When you, when you either broke into my chicken coop and killed all my animals, well, that's not a great chicken coop. Then. It's not a good chicken coop, is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got potteroos, betongs, bandicoots, rock wallabies, quolls, all these things that are largely extinct, if not completely gone from the state, and predators aren't eating them. There are foxes on my property, but they're in predator-proof enclosures. It's not brain surgery. Wow. You've got a real problem with that. Yeah, I do, man, because someone had a crack at me once. <laughs> I posted a video of my quoll, and he'd come, oh, those bloody things eat my chooks. We shoot them here. They're a pest. And it's like, oh, my oh, God. What? Yeah, yeah, you're a pest. Mm. Yeah. Can't Don't shoot you. him, though. You can't shoot that guy. No. Not legally, yeah. No. Isn't it funny? If we were any other species in the numbers that we are doing the damage to the environment that we do, we would eradicate us. We would poison us. You mm. know, you get a, a rat or a mouse, gets into your house, and you get you find a little bit of rat and mouse poo, what do you do? You put down poison. That's All that's doing is pooing in a cupboard. That's not changing the, the ecosystem. We absolutely <laughs> obliterate ecosystems, and we're fine with it, and we're still breeding with impunity. Speaking about that, we've done a few episodes of population and it's, you know, it's one of those subjects, we've talked about it before, we're not suggesting going outside and culling people, it's just more of an awareness. We're not saying do this or don't do that. We're not saying don't go outside and cull people. We're not saying that either. I don't think we're saying, we're just leaving it up to you, you know, but we're... No, we're 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 not saying don't do that. I I think it's just trying to bring the the conversation to the table and, and you do see it around the place a bit more now. And I think like we've talked about Attenborough come out and, you know, a few times he's talked about human overpopulation and still there are people that dig their heels in and say, nope. No, we could facilitate more people. They'll show you a map of Australia and say, this is a city, this is the city, this is the city. And everything else is, is, is fair game. It's like, well, no, if you actually look at the areas that humans impact by being in those little cities, the areas where we produce food, the areas where we mine, the areas that we pollute, the oceans that we trawl for food. And I don't mean to be depressing, but it's just bringing up that awareness. Until we started this podcast. I didn't understand all the problems with the planet and things like that. It's one of the many things that I've got out of this podcast is learning stuff like that. And and to start with the first few times that you hear that, oh, it's overpopulation and there's definitely too many people on the planet, you're sort of like, yeah, come on, guys. But but 
Jeez, the amount that I've learned, it is absolutely all about overpopulation. It doesn't matter what problem you really bring up now, you can pretty much draw it back to there being too many people on the planet. And I think there's a lot of countries that are changing that now, aren't they? Like I think Australia um, doesn't have as many babies now on average, um, stuff like that. Although I think the day before yesterday, they put figures out to say that it was the most babies born in Australia ever. Oh, really? In the last year, yeah. So what Come I've just said is absolutely wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, it is all about overpopulation. So um, another podcast we did was Native Animals as Pets. We talked about the pros and cons. That's probably the most discussion of one of our podcasts, the most discussion gone on about that podcast. And other people have done podcasts on the same thing. Our good friend Nick did one as well he did a video didn't he yeah he did a video Nick from of Wicked it. wildlife he's um, been on the show yeah yeah i think that's a lot of discussion went on about that um, it's a tricky one because it's, again it's like the population debate and there are people that are absolutely pro it and there are people that are absolutely against it and a lot of people have their blinkers on you know it's like political parties you know you got to be all or nothing with some of these issues but it's it's actually a very gray issue i i never used to be into the idea of people keeping native animals as pets and yet i did it as a zookeeper i did it as a wildlife demonstrator i've been very lucky though to see a lot of great keepers and one of the arguments people will throw at you is people are going to do it wrong the animals are going to suffer and all these things are going to happen yeah it's a good argument it's going to happen happens with dogs happens with cats happens with kids happens with it happens with farm animals too and 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 then you get into the argument of veganism like we shouldn't eat meat at all but then People that eat plants, well, where are those plants grown? Normally in a monocultural environment that used to be habitat. You know, so there's everything we do has an impact. That's why if we have less of us doing it, it's got to be better. What I hope to be achieving, getting out there and talking to school kids, I don't want school kids to grow up and be environmental demonstrators or, um, I don't know, growing local native plants necessarily, but we, we want those kids to grow up and be economists. You know, we want billionaires' children to grow up and have a passion for the environment too, you know, so we can merge the two. And I think that's going to happen. I mean, I hope that's going to happen. I hope that people are being drawn towards all the benefits of the environment. It's a tricky thing. I mean, I talk about biodiversity, but somebody could be quite content living out on a farm, seeing the sun go down over their paddocks with their horses and their sheep and their pasture grass, and it's probably beautiful. And maybe they've got a few introduced pine trees. Maybe, God, maybe they've got a gum tree on their property. And it's beautiful. It's it's lovely. Great, you know. Personally, I I love biodiversity and I value it. And that's because mostly I'm aware of it. If you're not aware of the complexity of biodiversity that's out there, that's a boring sentence. This is a hard job to try to promote this this type of stuff. <laughs> but I do my best. Um, if you're not aware of it, you're not going to care. And, there, and there's another argument too. Life has been wiped out many times. What will be the sixth major extinction currently we're in now and it will come back again yeah sure but not for your lifetime not for your kids lifetime i care about this stuff because i like it i don't care about this stuff because it's the right thing to do there is no right or wrong it's just i like it and hopefully other people will like it if they get to know it yeah all you people out there need to go and get jobs that you're really good at be a mathematician be a columnist be a banker be whatever you want to do and be an environmentalist as well absolutely so interviews that we've done 
You know, one thing that's been really interesting is yeah, we, we've got feedback because, you know, a few people we know or people that we've met listen to the show. And it's funny to hear when people say what their favourite episode is because some people's favourite episode is another person's worst episode. I, I guess that's probably shouldn't be that surprising to me, mm. you know. But the common theme is everybody will listen to all the episodes and they'll still get something out of it. And I find that quite cool. I think I get something out of all the episodes. And doing this, like, for me, it's been a huge learning curve. Like, I I remember the first paleontology one that we did with Aaron. Um, I, not because of Aaron or anything, I hated that. I hated sitting there doing it. And I'll explain why. (laughs) Because I'm a reptile person. And a lot of reptile people get into reptiles because of dinosaurs and things like that. I never did. I got into it because my dad used to push me towards things like that. And it was great. That was brilliant. Um, doing Aaron's, I knew nothing about dinosaurs and, or, you know, paleontology, full stop. I knew nothing about it. And I had nothing to say on that podcast. But it was, um, that was a scary podcast for me. It was um, scary for me too, because we're not interviewers, guys. We, we, we're just making this stuff up, and we're lucky that I guess go gentle us. But Aaron, Aaron, he he went there. He he would like answer questions succinctly, and then I was like, "Fuck, I didn't yeah. know questions." We don't have a list of questions. We just kind of try to have a conversation, don't we? Mm. And yeah. I couldn't even research too much because I had no idea what I'd even be researching. <laughs> like you know, yeah, I knew we we were going to do some Australian megafauna and go over that stuff, uh, but but you know, it, it sort of almost meant nothing to me. I was quite nervous. Um, and that was, I don't know how many episodes that was in. It was at least 10, if not more, into us doing the podcast. Yeah, it took me back to the first ones where I was super nervous. Because I remember the first day when you said to me, let's do a podcast, Steve. It's going to be great. And I normally don't like talking to people about stuff like this. I just get really embarrassed. I'm not a public speaker. Um, and, and I was instantly like, no way, I couldn't do that. I could not do that. That would be impossible for me. But you talked me into it, bastard. And uh, and I did it, and I think we've done all right. But the, the Aaron's one took me back to, like, really in my shell, thinking, like, oh, crap, this is really hard. Um, but the second one that we did with Aaron is probably one of my favourites that I've actually done, like, actually sat down and recorded. I've got lots of favourites with Aaron it was because I'd learned a lot more over all episodes that we'd done since then off of people and we'd have other people on that talk about these things and the second one was one of my favorites because I felt so comfortable sitting there talking to Aaron who's an absolute legend um and it was so much better so yeah I was just bringing it up as like a interview with the two he's the only one we've had on twice as well yeah um, an interview with the same person where the first one was really scary the second one was really great and I think that was part of it because I knew nothing about what was going on in the first one uh, you two were just talking absolute gibberish to me no I found it scary um, too I, but and, and the second one just feeling so good about doing it and, and just putting plus points to why I do the podcast yeah, right? yeah. That, that's a big one that always sticks in my mind and obviously our first um, podcast that we did, <laughs> Steve Backshaw. Yeah, I know. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? What a place to start. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? And a lot of people that we've had on the show, it's been their first ever podcast too. So you're an old hand at this now, number 50. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of, most, most of our guests have never been on a podcast, mm. probably even a radio interview. So yeah. 
and it, it's been like yeah I've, I'm always I'm still nervous when we do them um, but it's really good that it's not really good but yeah it's really good for me that most people that we get on I've found are bloody nervous too because yeah they haven't done things like that they, they've got their knowledge and everyone knows what they're gonna you know what they can talk about and that but it's still really nervous but it's ridiculous because there's you know two now there, there's normally three or four of us sitting around the table mm. like that's all just why, why would you get yeah why would you get nervous mm. and it is just a relaxed chat that's all we want to do is have a relaxed chat about what those people are doing we want them to say as much as possible yeah it's not meant to be an interview mm. um, but that said we're open if people want to you know direct and say hey listen guys can you do a bit more of this or a bit more of that we're open to it we're open to suggestions we're flying blind we hope you enjoy it we don't get any money out of it it's just something we do that we enjoy doing we wouldn't mind having a sponsor one day that'd be really cool if someone could fund it Elon Musk Musky Mustog you just lost it by calling him Musky and Mustog <laughs> so who next uh, Richard Branson the Brandonator oh god <laughs> so I guess it is a massive privilege that we've had some fantastic people on we've been really lucky and we a massive thanks to all of them we might not mention you all during this podcast but we do love you all we do. We had we had Ranger Stacy on the show. I grew up watching Ranger Stacy. I didn't. Steve didn't know who she was. Didn't know who she was. Mm. Send, the, send the hate mail to <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Mouse. No, Grove. I didn't know who Ranger Stacy was. But I don't know if you'd noticed, but I'm English. I didn't know who Steve Batchel was. I thought you were going to say Steve Crawford. No, I knew who he <laughs> was. I didn't know who Steve Batchel was, but I had heard of Deadly Sixty. Mm. So there you go. Mm. So we're even. Yeah, Stephen. So we have done a little bit of travelling. We've done our Borneo trip, we've done our NT trip, and we really want to do some more interstate trips. Well, we have um, to. We've got some great guests lined up and we have to travel to see them. We won't do a phone interview. We've got to come and see you. Yeah, we're not happy with phone interviews when we hear them. They always sound a little bit phone interviewy. I learnt a new word the other day. What was that? Well, you know how you've got coprophytic? That's something that eats its own poo. I knew that word, but I did want to ask you this, though. Oh. You hear of people that have pet snakes that eat their own poo. Like, I know a lot of animals eat their poo. Black-headed pythons. That's the thing. That's the snake that I've heard that does it a lot. Yeah. Aspiditis, Woma's blackheads. They eat their own skin. Why? Who, I, know, I know someone, Rob, who actually had one. He had newspaper as substrate. Ate all the newspaper. The snake? Yeah. And shit out all the newspaper. Oh. Like, it was fine. It ate it all. But, yeah, they eat their crap. They eat their shed skin. They eat each other. Maybe that's part of it. That's weird. I did have a theory on why. Oh. Because the, word, the new word that I learned, placentophagy, which is an animal that eats its own placenta, some humans do, and the theory is because you're getting the nutrients back. But they reckon that a lot of animals do because it hides any traces of the birth. Don't most animals, like dogs do that, don't they? I reckon dogs do I it. think dogs do it and yeah. cats do it, yeah. Yeah. So I guess you don't want any predators knowing that um, you just had a baby. So I was wondering whether... These snakes that are exhibiting coprophagy are doing it to hide traces of themselves. Because I always, if I've got a snake and it does a poo or it sheds its skin, I want to take that out of there straight away. Because I feel like if you're trying to remain cryptic from predation, you don't want your own feces stinking up your enclosure or your skin sitting there either, do you? So I wonder whether that's one of the reasons. So I think... Um Maybe snakes are the same as mammals. I don't know if the study's ever been done on snakes. Um, doing a bit of a search, I couldn't really find anything. But mammals and things eat their own poo for the nutrition and the, the microorganisms and things that they're going to get from eating their own shit. 
Yeah, and there's like things like baby koalas that eat pap, and I've seen them do it, and it's what big... pap? Yeah, it's a bit gross. It's a substance that the mum koala makes, and it comes out of her cloaca, and the baby sucks it out of basically sucks it out of the mum koala's bum, because. I'm so sorry about this. Listeners. Yeah, yeah. Fifty number fifty. Woo-hoo. Most people would have a party. There'd be drinks. There'd be cocktails. There'd be noises in the background of party We're poppers. We're going to talk about eating shit. We sure are. So anyway, moving swiftly onwards. Uh, yeah, just a thought I had. Look, I wonder if they were, you know, cleaning up after themselves. Because I wonder, like, you know, snake in captivity. If it's left with its own feces, you know, some people don't clean their snakes out and they wait until the snake's got no more room to buddy sit until they take their poo out. Is that stressing the animal out? Like in the wild, you wouldn't hang out near your poo. You'd, you'd want to move away because snakes, their sense of smell, it's acute, you know. Mm. It's their number one sense, really, isn't it? Mm. If there's an expert out there that wants to come in and talk about poo, I'm sure people are fascinated. Actually, speaking about poo, let's talk about this, Steve. You're very happy at the moment because we have here at Animals Anonymous headquarters, temporarily for a few months... Are we going to talk about my favourite animal? We've got a baby Because listeners might not know that my favourite animal is a wombat. No, that's right. I don't think you've mentioned <laughs> Australian it. Australian animal. That's right. Well, what's your favourite animal overall? Orangutan. Is it? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I like the moodiness of redheads. Um, (laughs) Here's here's something that I didn't know. I didn't know this until I started raising a baby wombat. Uh, And it's not even a tiny baby. This this guy's about nine, ten months old. Weighs four and a half kilos. Her name's Snuffles. But she does the little cube poos. But they're bloody tiny. Like, they're the size of a match head. But they're small, cubed poos. It's not constipated. No. No, no. And something else really funny about them, like when I've raised like bandicoots and quolls and betongs and potteroos and kangaroos and all of those things, and when you you feed them, you toilet them, you know, because in the pouch the mum puts their face down there and eats all the poo and the wee because she doesn't want it hanging around in that pouch. So obviously we don't do that, but we get a bit of a napkin and wipe it on there and stimulates the wee and the poo. It's all about it wee and poo, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, but it's sort of gross and it's, it's horrible. It's quite weird at. to watch. It is a bit, yeah. yeah. You can understand there's a bottle, you're feeding the baby. Then, what are you doing now? What, yeah, I, what, what's going on? I need an adult. Do I call someone? <laughs> um, but that's, that's what's going on there. But with the wombats, they'll only wee once a day. Um, so with snuffles, and, and when she does wee, it's a lot of wee. And, you know, you, you would... You couldn't have enough napkins to keep up with it, and it's you know pretty quick. It's like um, it's quite the stream that comes out. So we get a glass, we put it under the wombat, and I have to and be honest, sell it as whiskey. Sell it as whiskey. Yes, <laughs> it's the first time I've ever raised a wombat. So this is all very new to me, but um, I'm just telling you what I was shown to do. I get a big beer stein and I hold it and I hold it under Snuffles after she's had a um, six a.m. feed, and she'll fill it up about you know about a third full with wheat. Wow. Oh, is that? Uh, oh, I don't know whether you know. Is that, is that a natural adaptation? Is that they only pee once a day? <laughs> I thought you were going to say that in the wild, the mum will get a glass? beer glass. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do, surely. I don't, um, I don't know. That's a very good no, question. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder know. whether that is. Yeah. If you can hear chopping noises in the background, we've got Bree, and Bree's one of our volunteers here at AOHQ, and we do have 100 animals. And something I've, I resisted for a long time is getting volunteers. And I think if you work, you should get paid. It's my job. Why should somebody else do my job? If I was a plumber, no one's going to come and do my job for free. But it's one of the best things I've ever done. And I don't mean that selfishly because I'm every night I've got a couple of people that come and do my job for me. It's that these these people, they really love it. And I've got, I've got some retired age people that come and they really just enjoy hanging with the animals and, you know, looking after the animals. And I've got a lot of students that are doing um, things like 
you know, some some kind of captive animal management courses, and you know they've got to get a hundred hours experience. It's very hard to find places that will take on volunteers. So I pair them up with people with a bit more experience, so they can learn from each other. Um, but but I mean, a couple of the volunteers that come here have said to me it's the highlight of their week, and that's that's wonderful. You know, I mean, mm. what a, what a great thing. So I think you're mad. Because I do it every day, it's a bit weird. But I mean, you know, you get people come and look after your snakes, and they love doing it, don't they? They love it, yeah. Um, yeah, I've got people that really want to come around and help me clean snakes. Well, you know, it's not a glamorous thing for us to do because we've been doing it for so many years. It can be just mind-numbingly boring sitting there and cleaning out hundred, two hundred snakes or whatever. Yeah, and to think that people uh, are absolutely begging to come and do that sort of stuff, it's its a bit weird, but it's great. If you can get people in, you know, it's better for the animals. They get more attention. They get more... Um, and, and I notice most of the volunteers that you have, they're like, great, because they want to do different little things to, you know, give your animals something to do. They're uh, great with the enrichment. Yeah, yeah, yeah the I, enrichment side, they, they just seem to really yeah give the animal the enrichment they need it's, stu- it's stuff you don't have time for and mm. and you do still have to go around and check your animals yourself because to be fair a lot of people don't know what a healthy version or an that, unhealthy that's exactly version. right you've got the expertise of that and it's not that you didn't used to give your animals things to do it's just now they, they get even more than what you used they, to they do, certainly oh they do yeah. these guys have got the time to put into it yeah and then that word expertise freaks me out because i have people like you steve that come and look at all my reptiles and you know you see things i don't see mm. and you know and there's a lot of zookeepers that come through here and and different experts and wildlife vets that see things that i don't see so it's a constant learning thing but yeah so i mentioned that if you do hear some chopping in the background that's brie hello brie hi there you go Go the volunteers. Absolutely. Awesome. Actually, one thing I did, I haven't actually mentioned this to you, Steve, but one idea I, I did think was um, maybe one year when we, like we have the International Day of the Volunteer or whatever it's called, there's an International Volunteers Day or something. Yep. Might be cool to get a couple of um, volunteers on the show, maybe someone that works here, maybe some of these people that give up their time to work for um, national parks, like the Friends yep. the friends groups and things yep. like that. Cleland have volunteers up there. I used to uh, volunteer for Bush for Life too. That's an arm of Trees for Life. So Trees for Life, I used to volunteer for them too. I used to grow native trees. That was rewarding. I mean, I've bred a few things, not not to the extreme of yourself. I used to grow native plants. I still do it a little bit, but geez, it was exciting. Like you'd, I used to grow for Trees for Life and you'd have a, a foam box and you'd fit about 50 or 60 trees or shrubs in there and, and then you'd go out and you know you might have five of these boxes and you might have 250, 300 plants and you'd You'd go out and plant them at a landholder that had ordered these plants, and it was cool, you know, um, putting back bush, you know, where where it was just paddock for a long time. That was cool. But you can get a tray um, just of soil and get a whole heap of different seeds that you might collect when you're bushwalking, and it's just surprising what would come up, you know. You know, you could you'd prick them out and then put them into a tube, and I found that so rewarding. Like, yeah, it's great fun breeding different animals, but just growing plants, it's like you're growing the habitat for the animals too. Mm. I'm starting to like plants a bit. That's your <laughs> <laughs> Really? No. Uh, no. No, they're right. Actually, I was going to ask you, Steve. You, you um, like getting these Owen Pellies and things, that's, you, you're right into pythons again, hey? Like, that's, I mean, that's kind of what you're known My, for. But. It's always like, from, from when I was younger, we've spoken about it before on, on episodes, I think. But yeah, Frank Schofield, who was the person who really sort of brought me into the hobby, and like, he was always into the Boyd's, uh, so boas and pythons. And we always tried to keep everything that we could. And 
leading on to the pythons. But since being in Australia, because you can't keep every python of the world, it was always a lost cause with my python side. So I, I don't know, maybe I, I lost track a little bit. But then the Barkers, who Barker and Barker, David Barker, brought out the, the Pythons of the World vol- Volume 1 years ago, which was Australian Pythons. And we were always long awaiting Pythons of the World Volume 2 being the rest of the Pythons in the world. But he brought that out and it was Royal Pythons, which was a bit boring for me. What does that mean? Um, ball Pythons, Royal Pythons, and all their morphs. So they've got, a, they've got hundreds of different morph types, colour morphs, pattern morphs of ball Pythons. And that, that's what sort of he did as Pythons of the World Volume 2. This was all, blimey, volume one must have been 15 to 20 years ago when that came out. Amazing book. If you're into pythons, get that book. Um, it's great. Volume two, which is just about ball pythons, um, is good. It's, it's good if you want to learn about breeding morphs and, and all that side of things. But then they brought out volume three last year. It might have been earlier this year, but I think last year. Um, which is the rest of the pythons, like the Malay Peninsula and Asian pythons and things. And it massively revived my love for keeping pythons. Just reading through that book just sort of rebooted everything that I was always massively into, and that was the pythons. And yeah, it's really it really has done it now. What would that and, and obviously Gavin Bedford getting the Owen Pellies into captivity and now being able to own Owen Pellies, I'm back to what I was doing 20 plus years ago of keeping all these amazing pythons i've gone back now you know i I want to have i want to have pairs of all of them uh, because i don't want to breed them all but i want every australian python back in my collection to look at and to educate people if it needs to be when they're around mine or, or whatever and yeah it's just really revived my love for what i've always loved the pythons reptiles i love reptiles but pythons is always my thing that sounds awesome dude and when people come to your house to be able to see all the different pythons from the world's smallest python, your pygmy pythons, pygmy python, yeah. and then you've got like Australia's biggest pythons the as well. The scrub python, yeah which, yeah, which is all there, and then, yeah, everything in between. And potentially the Owen Pelly python, it sounds like, could be up there with the length of a scrub python. You know, a scrub python is the largest snake. Probably it's the longest at the moment, but I, I have a feeling that Owen Pelly's might might be up there as well. But the big friendly giant, you will, you know, a 15, 16 foot or, or three, four, five meter scrub python is a handful of a snake. Whereas own pellies, I think, will be a bit softer and a bit more gentle. So scrub python's longest snake in Australia? Yes. And then the Pilbara olive python is maybe the heaviest or is that just, just olive? I think it's olive pythons in general. I don't okay. think Pilbara olives, Bar and I, get any bigger than normal olives. Jeez, they can both get massive okay like they can both be big heavy snakes might be wrong um you know i'm not saying that's for sure but i, I don't i think if someone had a big pilbara i'd probably be able to match it with a big olivaceous with a big normal olive there's certainly a lot of people excited about these owen pythons. yes and so they should be from a hobby point of view it is just amazing because we weren't up until five years ago we weren't allowed to keep them that is the only python that you could if you were like me, I want to own every python in the world at some point in my life. You couldn't. You, you couldn't have that goal because you can't own own pelly pythons. Are they harder to keep than any other python? No one really knows. It, it doesn't seem like it. Gavin's taken some from the wild and taken them into captivity 
and managed to breed them fairly quickly. Like in comparison to taking pythons out of the wild, you'd normally have to get them acclimatized. And I'm not saying he hasn't had to do any of that, but it seemed to have been a pretty quick turnaround of getting them acclimatized to captivity and, and actually getting viable eggs and hatching hatchlings out. And yeah, it, he seems to have done it a relatively bloody great like turnaround time, really. Because a lot of the time, I know we were in England, but you know, if you took stuff out of the wild, where in back in the day when you used to get stuff out of the wild from Indo, you know, you'd, you'd get it over to America, England, wherever it went to, and you'd need a good few years just to get it acclimatized, just to get it, you know, used to captivity. Obviously, you've got that six month thing with the weather changes and, and, and all that sort of stuff, but it seems like he's got them into captivity and, and made it look pretty easy. Are you pretty confident you'll be able to breed these guys in a few years? Absolutely. No, I hope so. It's <laughs> no, it's not my main reason to getting them. I know. Um, honestly, the main reason is just that hobby thing of it's just something that I am. Uh, you saw me in Northern Territory when he brought one for us. I, saw, I saw you cry. I was, <laughs> I, was, I was probably weren't far off. You know, it was it was that special. It was but emotional. it goes back a long way. You know, with the Frank and Frank died last year. Um, and stuff like that you know it goes back to all of that like yeah it was it was because I wanted to share that with him because that is the only python that he couldn't keep so fingers up to Frank (laughs) you you know it was uh, it was one of those amazing moments it was five years ago or however long ago it was when Gavin got permission and that it was there was just a massive woo at that point it's wow, always, there's one day I might be able to own these things. It's always interesting when a new animal comes into the hobby and you know they're, they're, they're worth a lot of money, but then mm. the price comes down. And then there's a, a lot of people buy animals to breed and sell, and that's fine. That's how the hobby perpetuates. But it's funny. I mean, you know, I always say to people, go for the animal that you want. Don't think about its resale value or breeding value. I mean, you know, if you if you love that animal for mm. whatever reason, that's the animal you should you should get. Mm. Is the Iron Pelly Python, the rarest python in the world? You see that said a well, fair bit. Well, yeah, people are saying that a fair bit. I'm not convinced that Iron Pelly Pythons are the, the rarest python in the world. Uh, I don't really get that. People are saying it, and yeah, cool. I, I couldn't say no, but, you know, things like rough-scale pythons. Um, rough-scale pythons might be because of where they are. They're hard to reach, so there's not been that many seen in the wild. Where um, are they found? They are the Kimberleys in Australia. Angolan python, which is from Africa. Angolan. Yeah. So they are as well. Angolans would be up there as being rare uh, rough scales. And probably more. I mean, there's a python called the Mon python. I think it's M-O-N, which has only ever been one found. And I think that's in a jar now in America, in a museum. So that's rarer. Mm. God, I mean, there are, there are animals that you look at in the mammals of Australia that are like only known from one specimen and reptiles only mm. known from mm. one specimen i think where the mon python was i think it's been a bit war-torn for years and years it's in burma which is myanmar now I, I think that's where it's come from it's in the barker book anyone who likes pythons get the barker books the, the complete set pythons of the world volume one is super rare now and very hard to get mm. but oh look and things like that turn up i mean i always yeah. check op shops and if, if you can find any kind of field guide a friend of yours got one from Mount Barker not long back, didn't they? Well, it was Daniel who actually yeah. we've done an episode with Daniel. We haven't released it yet. Daniel Saliba, he's talking about Murray Darling Carpet Pythons. He got it for like 
eight bucks or something. Ridiculous. You know, like, there are know. hundreds online now, that second hand. Out of print. That's what's kept me on in, in my hobby. What have you got that's going on that's special at the moment? Your AAHQ, Animal, Animals Anonymous headquarter, is three acres, mm-hmm. most of it being untouched bushland. What keeps you going on this place? What do you love about it? Oh, look, I have no choice. I mean, I just have to keep going with what I do because it's the path laid out in front of me and uh, I, I'm a slave to my own ambition and my ambition is not to get a sports car and I'm, I'm one of those people that have a picture of a sports car above his desk to strive for. I'd be bored shitless with a sports car after the first seven years, <laughs> after the first week. <laughs> um, you know, it, it really is just to, to grow the business and just to continue to do what we do in a bigger way. Like if somebody came out tomorrow and gave me a million dollars, please, I would only... Re- I'd keep doing what I'm doing. I'd just keep investing into what I'm doing. Just try to raise awareness about biodiversity. You know, keep trying to monetize conservation. Um, you know, and I, I love the captive animals, like I've said, and you know, seeing people you know, meet some kind of captive bred animal that they've never heard of. But I, yeah, I love going down to the bushland and just seeing what's happening. It's always different. It's 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 novelty. You know, like Terence McKenna said, novelty. It's um, if I had a paddock, sometimes the sun would be coming up, sometimes the sun would be going down, sometimes it's green, sometimes it's brown. How exciting. But when you go into the bush, it's different all the time. It's like a deep, dark well. The longer you look into it, the more you find. And that's what I try to encourage people to do. So I would love to one day have private encounters here where people can, yeah, you can come and you know, see an animal, but come down into the bushland. And when you've got someone interpreting the bushland to you, it's a whole a whole different thing. It opens up um, things that you may not have seen in a, in a quick visit. Like a national park. I mean, even I, I'm guilty of it. I'll go to a national park and I'll be like, you know, I might not be in the moment. But it's when you really tune in and, and you start to see, you know, what's around, like birds start to come out and you start to hear the frogs and you start to, you know, see the invertebrates and whatever else. You know, you start to see those cycles. And for, for me, it's not about conservation. Like I said, it's because I like it. And there's there's a an intrinsic reason why I like it too. It's it's kind of, I don't want to say spiritual, but I mean, there's so much more than what our senses perceive. And when you're in somewhere like, you know, a, a nice natural environment, you, you really, you can really open up to, you know, something else. And I don't want to get all woo-woo, but... No, but you can get all woo-woo because cause the, the fact of the matter is scientifically it's proven to heal people. It is. It is, uh, and a complexity of biodiversity too is, is, I mean, there's those studies that you look out of a window and you've got a garden or you don't have a window. You know, there are studies that show that people heal a lot quicker when they do have that, mm. that window to look at. So why not have a window out into complex biodiversity? Yeah, you can have a rose garden. Yeah, you can have lawn. And I'm not against that. I mean, I've got bloody lawn right outside my window. I, I love a bit of lawn. I've got a freaking golden ash tree. It's not a local native plant, but it's a beautiful shade tree. You don't want to sit under a gum tree, folks. It's not that shady and it could kill you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but it's having that, that um, the best of both worlds, isn't it? You know, it's not all or nothing. Yeah. No, it's amazing when you walk around this place and, and from the day you brought it, which has got to be less than three years ago, mm. um, to what it looks like now is just amazing. It is motivational with what you've done, for sure. Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, getting on top of the weeds is good too because the places that are pristine bush, there are no weeds. Most people move up into the hills and the first thing they do is get a goat and a sheep to keep the grass down. Um, you know, but you put, back, you put back the bush, it's not easy. The first few years are bloody hard work, 
But, I mean, here we were lucky because most of it was already there. But around the periphery, you know, I'm controlling it. I call it the front line. And um, it, it, eventually it does the work for you, you know, the, the Bradley method. Work from the best bush out and just control around the good bush and slowly let the bush take over yeah, with your weeding and your mulching. I remember doing. coming here and it was just about 10,000 agapanthers. Oh, there was a shitload of agapanthers. Yeah, that's right. That, the area between Fire the house defense. and the bush. Oh, my God. People love them here. Uh, so, that went. yeah, really easy way to get them out. Just got to use a crowbar, a brick, lever them out. They come straight out. Yeah, you and see, then you can sell them. People will buy them. Yeah, yeah, they sure will. I've got them in some of the Potteroo Petal enclosures because not much else grows there. So, you know, it's better than having nothing. So, mm. there it is. Good. But... Guys, thanks so much. I mean, I, I have to say, I have met a few people. I wasn't going to say it. But I've met a few people that listen to the show and just getting feedback from people. It's, it, it is overwhelming, isn't it? Like people that listen. It's, and, it's, and it's not because it's us. It's the guests that come on the show. So, you know, we're so grateful for all of you guys. We just yeah. are. And, we're, and we've got a lot, hopefully, that we're going to do in the future. We want to travel more. Um, we, we definitely want to get a bit more interstate travelling so that we can get there. Because um, as we said earlier, we don't want to do phone interviews. Um, so we want to be getting to each uh, each state at some point over the next year or two. And like we did, you know, Northern Territory was amazing for us. We got some great interviews. We want to do Sydney. We have... I'm going to bring up something that we don't like to talk about. You hate to talk about. We've got like a Patreon account, haven't we? Yeah, no one likes to ask. We're not asking, no. We try and do it try and do as much as we can with this we want to do so much more we want to go interstate and that and yeah if if the odd person does chuck us a bit of beer money it'll make it easier for us if you do want to support the show like steve said we have a patreon account feel free to share comment we love that thanks so much for all the positive feedback my flatmate has just walked in and she had the wombat with her tonight i got the wombat and that's probably a good way to end this because steve you won't get any sense out of him now. I'm not really interested in the podcast now. <laughs> just just what's in my lap. And that's an amazing wombat. Southern Harry knows wombat. Thanks, everyone who listens to our podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.